Thank you. You know, sometimes you just got to roll with the flow, right? You know, you just got to go with it. Um, here we are. We're at Faith Bible. So grateful to Scott for letting us be here to have our Easter service. Um, I thought we would be in our own building this year, but, you know, that didn't happen. And yet, here we are celebrating the power of the resurrection and what Jesus has done for us together as his people. Now, one of my favorite things around Easter is that normally it's kind of near my birthday. My birthday's in the end of March, and so sometimes it just wraps around it, so it's just a really fun season for me. But now, as my kids have gotten older, um, one of the things I cherish about Easter is that we get to be together as family. And um, my wife usually comes up with something fun for us to do. And uh, this year, she came up with axe throwing. And so we went through axes, and I, I mean, I was like, oh, is this going to be fun? Like, what are we going to do here? And uh, it was awesome. Like, we hurled axes through the air into the wall and, like, put on Viking helmets and stuff. Like, it was really incredible. But one of the things I learned about throwing axes is that you can't just throw an axe however you want. If you try to sidearm that, you're not, it's not going to work. If you try to throw it the way they're not telling you to throw it, it's going to like hurl sideways and they have like plenty of fencing and stuff so you don't kill anybody in the process. But you have to throw it exactly central. Like you have to line up and you have to lean into it and you've got you've to be right on point in order to be able to hit the wall and for your axe to fly and boom, right into the wall. And um, I think Easter is a really good opportunity for us to ask ourselves a question about what is, what's really central about our faith. Like, what is essential about being a Christian? When we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, what, what is central? What is critical? I was reading on history.com, and um, they were talking about, uh, you know, because it's Easter, or near Easter, what does it mean to be a Christian? Here's some of the things that they mentioned. Christians are monotheistic. That's true. That the essence of Christianity revolves around the life and death of Jesus, that's true. And they have all these ideas about what it means to follow Jesus. And so as I'm about to read the text for you, I want you to ask that question. What's the most important thing about following God and being part of his kingdom? What does it mean to really follow Jesus? Okay, so hear this, this text, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the teachers of the law came and heard him debating, noticing... That Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with your heart and with your understanding and with your strength and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so again, the question, what is central? What's the most important thing in the scriptures? What's the thing that if, you know, you had a moment with Jesus and you were going to spend some time with him and you had one question, what's the most important question you could ask him? Jesus is contending that actually, if you really want to know what the core of what it means to be part of his kingdom, if you really want to understand what makes the resurrection so incredible to, in, a, in a word to describe his kingdom, 
you could use the word, the idea of love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Now, these teachers of the law are having this debate. This was a normal experience. They would go into the temple. They would have these discussions. They would pepper Jesus with ideas. And finally, they come to this one, and this, this guy kind of walks up and sees what's happening and says, so what's the greatest commandment? Let's, let's do that. And Jesus answers from Deuteronomy chapter 6, quoting the Shema, something that um, Jewish people would have prayed and would have been taught to their children uh, to think about what does it mean to really follow God, that the Lord your God is one, to follow him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. In other words, to follow him with the whole of your being, to love him. Now, the word love gets used a lot in our culture. People have all sorts of things to say about love. Dr. Seuss says this, You know you're in love when you feel you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. I mean, you know, that, that's fun. That's interesting. Um, maybe there's more. Shakespeare said this, love all, trust a few, do wrong to no one. That is a really tough standard to live up to, but I, but I like it. The Dalai Lama said this, all religious institutions, despite different philosophical views, have the same message, a message of love. The kind of love uh, that, that Jesus talks about, it's different than any other kind of love because it's not based on just the good moments. It's not based on my ability to do no wrong. It's not even based on the idea, a philosophical, human-created concept of what does it mean to love. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is a whole-hearted kind of love, a complete picture of love, a love that says God wants your heart in such a way there's no pretending, it's not inauthentic, it's actually not something you can pull off on your own. And so what does he do? He shows us what real love looks like. Jesus giving his life for us. Jesus dying for us. Jesus rising from the dead for us so that we could experience fellowship with God so that Jesus could answer the question this way about what's the most important thing, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, to love him wholeheartedly. Let me say it this way. If your mind and your heart can begin to wrap its understanding around the comprehensive nature of God's love for you, it actually begins to bring life into your soul. That's why it's so significant. Jesus is saying, I want to invite you into the kind of loving relationship that I'm going to express to you in a way that you can barely imagine. You know, everyone at this moment is kind of wondering when Jesus is going to finally do the thing he's been promising to do. Remember, he just came in. We had Palm Sunday. He enters into Jerusalem, and now he's here, and they're in a debate. And they're like, okay, let's do this. And Jesus is answering these questions, and they're going back and forth. And then, so what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. When you think about what it means to approach God, how do you describe it? How do you define it? How would you know right now if you're in a good place with the Lord? Would it be based on your actions? Would it be based on your thoughts? Would it be based on your deeds? What would it be based on? What if you began to assess your relationship with God by thinking about the kind of love that he actually expresses to you. That's what he invites us into. This teacher of the law is engaging with Jesus, and they're having sort of, a, it's, a, it's like a mutually beneficial, it's a respectful conversation. Jesus says um, in verse 34, Jesus sees that he had answered wisely, and he says to him, you're not far off from the kingdom of God. You're not far. You don't quite understand it, but you're not far. Jesus is saying to him, you're answering wisely. 
Because the man answers with the exact thing Jesus said. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. The teacher of the law responds and says, you're right. Not even burnt offerings and sacrifices matter. The main thing that matters is hacking into understanding who, how to love God, how to love one another. Now, again, remember, this teacher of the law is an expert in the Scriptures. And he would have known the Scriptures backwards and forwards. And he's sitting down with Jesus, and he asks this question, so what's the most important commandment? Now, that's a big question. Do you know how many words are in the Bible, like in the English versions? It's like 750 plus thousand words in the English Bible, 780 if you have like an ESV or something that's kind of wooden, <laughs> closer to 800 maybe. Um, but there's over 750,000 words in the Bible. There's 31,000 verses, and he asks this question, what's the most important commandment in all of the scriptures? It's a big question. 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 says that all scriptures God breathed useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so it's no small question for him to ask Jesus this, but why does he ask Jesus this question? Well, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, if you look in chapter 11, you begin to get a peek into what's been going on here in the temple. In chapter 11, the first thing we see or towards the end is that they're having a debate with Jesus about who has authority. So remember, they're in the temple courts, they're having this conversation, they're pinging Jesus, they arrive in Jerusalem, and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus replies, I will ask one question um, with another, answer me, and I'll tell you what authority I'm doing these things. And then he goes on to have this discussion with them, and they don't know how to answer him. And so then we read, Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So they're, they're having like this theoretical, hypothetical discussion about who are you? And so they say, well, who, what's your authority? And Jesus goes, I'm not going to tell you. Then they go to the, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, and Jesus tells the parable of the tenants. And this is a story about a man who has resources, and he has servants, and the, the tenants end up killing the servant. And so Jesus is trying to give an example here where the Pharisees realize that they're the ones who are actually inflicting harm by the way in which they're pursuing God, that they're guilty of this. How do they respond? They're afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away, but they looked for a way to arrest him. So they're having this debate. They've gone from being irritated at him because he said he had authority. Now they're angry at him because he's accusing them uh, that you're actually guilty of something here. Then they ping him with another question. What about paying taxes? Should we pay should we pay Rome the taxes that they deserve, or how should we do that? And they're doing it. It's a trick question, because what they're trying to get Jesus to do is either side with Rome or side with the people. If Jesus says, yes, pay Rome all the taxes they demand, they're right, do that. The people who are occupied, Israel there, are going to rebel against Jesus. But if Jesus says, don't pay Rome, then what's going to happen? Then Rome's going to take care of Jesus. So they're trying to pin him up, the Pharisees are. And Jesus says to them, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And they were amazed at him. It's like they keep trying to catch Jesus and they can't catch him. Then they come to this marriage of the resurrection. Like it's gotten difficult, you know, the questions have. But then they throw out a truly hypothetical scenario. Based on the law of Moses, they ask him a question about uh, marriage and the resurrection. Here's Jesus' reply. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? That would be like coming to me and saying, have you not read your Bible at all? Like, of course I read my Bible. Jesus says, are you not in error because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God? And then he goes on to say, you are badly mistaken. 
Now they're really irritated. They're very frustrated at Jesus. But before they can do anything, we immediately come to this text. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. He came and heard them talking. Noticing Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the greatest one? So do you see what's happening? There's been this debate going on, and this man, this teacher of the law comes in and says, okay, so here's the deal. What, what is then the greatest commandment? Like, what is then the greatest commandment? Because we've been trying to hit you with all these things. What matters most? What's the most important thing? Love God, love one another. And then, through the discussion, it ends again with him saying, you're not far off from the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to really love God with our whole heart? I want to read you this. It's a brief little snippet here about what it means to love God wholeheartedly, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus uses four terms taken together. They don't signify different faculties or parts of the human being, but different ways of referring to the whole person. The heart is the inner depths of a person, the wellspring from which all of our decisions and actions flow. The soul is our whole self as a living being. That which Jesus has said we must be willing to give up for his sake. Jesus adds another term, mind, to emphasize that even our thoughts and our reasoning must be animated by the love of God. And then this last phrase, with all of your strength, emphasizes that love for God is not a sentiment that arises spontaneously, but a commitment that calls for every ounce of our energy. How can such love without measure even be possible, only by first knowing and experiencing the love of God for us? Jesus is telling the man, if you really want to know, if you really want to be part of the kingdom, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Their answer is to never ask him another question. No one dares speak. Why is that? Why does no one say anything? How are you doing with loving God perfectly with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength? That is a very tall order. Who can do that? And that's the point. Jesus is saying, you're actually made to love me with all of who you are. You can't. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to deal with that? The teachers of the law thought to themselves, we prove that we're lovable before God by obeying the commandments. We've proven that we've done these things, so they were righteous before God. And Jesus goes, okay, here's the most important one. I want you to love completely. No one dared ask him another question. See, part of what this man is discovering and why he is far off, still just a little further off in the kingdom than he wants to be because he's still not in, is that he's, what he's waiting for is who then can do this for us? See, Jesus sees that he answers wisely. You're not far from the kingdom of God. No one says anything. It's almost like Jesus is dropping the mic because no one knows how to answer it. They're like, if I'm not in the kingdom, if I'm still far off, but I've I've been doing all these things, then what am I supposed to do? How do they answer that question? Well, that's what the resurrection answers. That's what the resurrection is all about. The teacher's disposition is admirable. He's humble. He's receptive. But what needs to happen is for for him to experience the kingdom of God in full is that he needs to actually have Jesus do what he promises he's going to do, which is die for him and rise again for him. For, for Jesus' death to be his death. For Jesus' resurrection to be his resurrection. But he doesn't quite have his mind wrapped around that yet. Because they're, they're debating Jesus. They're waiting for him to take over. You know, as you consider the power of God's resurrection, what it means is things like this. 
that Jesus goes to the outside. He goes outside of the kingdom so that we can be on the inside, so that we can be in the light. Jesus goes to death so that we don't have to experience ultimate death from God the Father. Jesus enters into places of condemnation so that you and I can be free from those places of condemnation. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus will come for us again. You know, trusting him beyond your doubts. What kind of doubts do you have? Everyone has different doubts about who God is at different points. Jesus' grace is greater still. Trusting him beyond our confusion. There will be times where you're confused about what God is doing or his ways. God's actually got grace for you in the midst of your confusion and says, look to the power of the resurrection. The bad news is you can't get in the kingdom by yourself. And that's what this teacher is learning. The good news is, is that Jesus has made a way by trusting in his grace, trusting in his mercies, trusting in what he has promised he will do, which is conquer death for us. You know, part of what we consider as we think about the resurrection is the question of where are we finding life? Where are you really finding life? If you're finding life in self-love, the reality is that you're, everyone around you has to be a little bit less because you're the, you're the most important thing in the room. If your idea of finding life is in self-preservation, immediately people become a threat to you instead of places to express grace and kindness. Or what about the idea of having sort of a self-loathing? You know, some of you have a deep sense of guilt and frustration about yourself. Do you know God's grace, the power of his resurrection, calls you to see yourself as God sees you, a treasured and beloved child of God. Jesus comes to us with the resurrection and says, let my resurrection be your resurrection. You can't enter the kingdom without this. But with this, all of the promises that, I, that God has made to me are yours. You have access by grace and through faith. You know, Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've been looking at these first, you know, the first nine or ten chapters together. We're going to go back and hit a couple of the passages we missed after Easter. But one of the things we see about Jesus, and he's doing it right here because he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, is that he fulfills prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. He's proving that he really is the Son of God who has authority. That he really is the one who comes and tells us about his grace so that we can experience life. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but mathematicians who look at the prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled sort of do a comparison on, or thinking about probabilities of, of how prophecies work. They said this in this one article. One person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in a quadrillion chance. So that, that's a bunch of zeros, right? It's a bunch of zeros. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. So that's 157 zeros. Do you know how many promises Jesus fulfills in the, in the, in the Gospels? It's over 300. It's statistically impossible. But that's how Jesus rolls. Think about his life. Being born of a virgin, completely impossible. Being 12 and stumping theological experts, difficult to fathom. Feeding thousands with only a few baskets and a few fish. How do we even process that? Living a life where not a single person can claim that he ever did any unloving act towards anyone. He is love. Speaking to storms and waves and them quieting or walking across the water. Unbelievable. Telling a little girl who's presumed dead to get up and momentarily after she wakes to say, hey, let's go ahead and feed her. Making blind people see and deaf people see and lame people walk. Making those with leprosy restored. 
Jesus comes to change the world. Here we are in the woodlands on a completely different part of the planet from where these things took place in a completely different age, speaking a completely different language, and yet Jesus is still changing our lives even today. Jesus is inviting us into celebrating and experiencing the resurrection because that's where life is really found. The greatest commandment, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Do you know why Jesus is calling us to loving him like that? Because that's how God the Father has already loved us. God the Father has loved us with every bit of power that he has so that we might experience life so that we might experience grace. And Jesus is inviting us to reflect that kind of love back to him because it's in that moment we experience real fellowship with God. The kind of love that enables us to move past bitterness. The kind of love that enables us to move past fears. The kind of love that enables us to actually have hope that God is at work in our community right here in the woodlands and surrounding area. We base all of that on the power of the resurrection that we celebrate today. My hope for you, this week, as you move into, you know, the rest, as we, as we head into April, as you might really pause and consider the power of the resurrection for you. Jesus has made a promise to bring life to you. And part of how he invites us into that is to say, look, this is what you're made for. You're made to love me with your whole heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And if you don't, you're going to love something else. And that thing is not going to be kind and gracious to you like I am. The result of loving Jesus like he loves us is more grace and more mercy and more kindness and more of his presence. The one who did all those things welcomes us and makes possible for us to have an advocate before the Father even this evening. As we celebrate the supper, celebrate it in light of the power of the resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, this evening we consider these words, this very simple question that the teacher of the law asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, you answer that the Lord is one, to love him with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, to love our neighbor as ourself, such a simple and yet profound thing. And the reason you call us into it is because you have already loved us with the totality of your grace. And so, Lord, would you encourage us as we celebrate, as we rejoice, as we find rest in the power of Jesus' resurrection for us even this evening. We ask all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.